Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Lore and Legend Halloween Special, Episode 2, The Cannibal King's Daughter. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, story folk Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, and Shawnee Basket. Now in the last episode of our regular series, The Dreams of Kings, you heard in short the story of King Aphon and his insatiable appetite. But did you know that there's more to the story? Because King Aphon also had a daughter, and that daughter was Odysseus's grandmother. The following episode is an interpretation of the story of the cannibal king and the fate of his daughter, Princess Mestra of Thessaly. The episode contains disturbing elements of horror, body horror, and sexual violence, and so listener discretion is advised. So now, here once again is the story of King Aphon. But if you've heard part of this story before, then keep listening, because the story continues. Robbers and bandits make their home in the mountains. Some are desperate. They have no other place to go. For some men, however, it is a way of life. Odysseus's grandfather was one such man. His name was Autolycus. He made his home on Parnassus, the great lime mountain which climbs to the sky above the sanctuary of Delphi, where Apollo's priests sing his praises. And like his grandson, Autolycus was famed for the deafness of his hand, his tongue, and his mind. He was the first fruit of that tree whose root was the radiant god Hermes when he lay with wildly beautiful Kyone. And in his time, Autolycus made of banditry such an art that among the Greeks, he was called the King of Thieves. Now as a boy, Odysseus had once crossed the austere threshold of his grandfather's house with black blood gushing from his leg. A vicious wound, gored by the tusk of a black boar which he had hunted and which nearly tore out his vital artery. Autolycus watched as his own sons bound and spelled the wound, and as they did so, he favoured the boy with a rueful smile. Young Odysseus, he said, do you know your mother birthed you against my wishes? I told her that we didn't need another mouth to feed, that no one would want to raise King Sisyphus's bastard, and that she should flush you from her womb. But when her labours gave way and your childish cries echoed through our cavern home, your mother's nurse brought you to my knee. She wanted me to call you Polyeritos, as one who had been much prayed for. But that was not a fitting name for men of our vein. 
I said, since I am one who wishes suffering to many men and women on this rich earth, let this child be named Odysseus, for we are all men and women of suffering in this family, and yet we will suffer no one. Such a man am I, and such a woman was your grandmother. Her name was Mestra, and her father, he was a monster. That was the first time that Odysseus ever heard the story of King Aphon. King Aphon, who, through his hunger and his lust for glory, committed sacrilege against the gods, who did not care about the price of his fame, but wanted to build the greatest palace that the world had ever seen. It did not matter that a grove of oak trees, sacred to Demeter, the grain-giving and green goddess, stood in the way. And he led out a column of woodsmen to where he would lay the new foundations of this palace, and under his adamant gaze they began to fell away with their axes. Now at the heart of the grove there was a great and ancient oak, great of girth, its reef golden, its thick boughs hung with a thousand flowers for the thousand mortal prayers that every day that goddess answered. And the brazen work of the woodsman faltered, and yet seeing them shrink back in their holy fear, King Aphon began to mock them. He crowed. If this was the very tree that Demeter loves, if this be the very home of the goddess herself still, I would see its green tresses spread out before me on the ground. And he took up the axe himself, and he struck the first blow. He split the great oak's wizened skin, and a tear of blood ran down the head and onto the grass. A cry went up, from amongst all of the woodsmen, and one of them tried to put himself between the king and the tree, but Aphon snarled, and with a flick of his arm, he hacked off that man's head at the neck. And then he laid into the tree. Blow after blow, he severed branch, he severed trunk, he split the roots. He laid apart the tree to its heart smeared the grass about with crimson streaks of bloody sap. And from the ravaged core, the tree's dryad cried out and groaned, I curse you, you who murders me. I prophesy your death. I spell your doom. And yet he continued to hack and to heal. And the men hauled down on the trees with their strong ropes until the trunk split and fell and crushed all of the trees that surrounded it. And the people were dismayed to witness this. All of the people, including Aphon's daughter. Yes, King Aphon had a daughter, your grandmother. Odysseus. Her name was Mestra. She was still a girl then, 
just shy of womanhood. And when she saw what her father had done, she was driven to a frenzy of panic. For she had held no one closer to her heart than Demeter. And now she was distraught, for the holy nymph for bereaved Demeter, but also with certain horror and fear for herself and for her father. What would the gods do to them? Whom could she pray to? And she didn't remember why, but she fled down to the sea's edge. And she threw her prayers out, out and into the waves. The surging tide answered, rushed in to swirl and to foam around her ankles, lashed about her calves, broke upon her thighs, and all at once Poseidon's voice, his rising roar, deep and full and roar with power, his tide pulling her into his flood, wrestling her, seizing her, There was no question, only the smothering weight of the water, the forcing out, the drowning. Afterwards, she was wretched up and out. The foam bubbled around her on the dark sand. The salt stunk, raw in her eyes, under her nails, between her legs. She cried to herself. And the roar of the sea continued on, regardless. When the nymph of the holy oak died, her mother, Demeter, had felt the shudders and the groans. She was grasping tightly to the earth-sunk roots as the tree died. And then the goddess wiped the singeing tears from under her eyes, and she began to spell the king's fate. She called one of her oreads and sent them out, riding in her own chariot drawn by dragons, to the farthest bounds of Scythia where lies a freezing land of gloom, of barren soil, naked of any crop or tree. There in that place, there lived the three wretched spirits, called cold and fever and famine. Yes, on the granite peak of Caucasus, that was where Lemos, the spirit of famine, lived scrabbling about the stony fields with tooth and nail for withered weeds. A hollow creature, her bones and her bowels stretched beneath her paper skin. Her lips were white crusts and her hair coarse straw. Her knees and her ankles swollen like balls. And through the voice of the frightened Oread, Demeter bid famine, whom long ago fate had decreed she could never meet face to face. Through the Oread she bid that famine climb into the belly of that wretched king, and let nothing compel her to ever come out. And so as the king 
slept. Famine drifted down the wind and through the window of his palace, climbed up upon his bed, wrapped her claw-like arms around his chest and placed her white lips against his own, filled his mouth and throat and lungs with herself, his hollow veins with all of her empty craving. And then in the blink of an eye she was gone, fled from the place of the fertile earth, floating back down the winds to her bleak mountain home in the pit of dearth. And as she went, Aphon still slumbered beneath the wings of gentle sleep. And in his sleep, he dreamed of food and feasting. He chewed at invisible morsels, ground down on ghostly sustenance with his teeth stuffed his throat with imaginary food, grabbed handfuls of the empty air. But when he woke, the king found that the hunger had not left him. He was ravenously hungry. And so he called out at once to his servants to bring him food. Well, first he finished one meal, and then he called for another. And that night, and all of the days that followed, he dined on red meat, on bird flesh, on fishes of the sea, and yet there was nothing that could seem to calm the craving. And as the sea swallows the never-ending water of all Earth's rivers, as the fire consumes every stick or log that is added to it, so he found the feasting would not satiate him, but only stoke his hunger. And day, after day, he ate mountains of food. Enough, it seemed, to satisfy whole cities or realms. And his daughter, Mestra, was forced to watch as the ravening spirit consumed her father, as his rage, which had always dwelt within his heart, became simply the white-hot edge of his hunger burning its way out into the whites of his eyes, the clenching of his jaw, swelling larger and larger through his frame so that he became bowed and haggard with it. There was no question that he would notice his daughter had been violated. His thoughts could never stray long from the hollow whistling that filled his stomach so Mestra stood by his table as he cleared it, called and conducted the servants as they drew water and wine and bore them from the cellar and the well to pour back down the king's throat. And it was she who mopped his brow and cleaned the gristle from his cheeks when afterwards he lay cramped and shivering gasping still as his swollen guts digested his meal. Yet still, he was hungry.
King Aphon spent almost the entire wealth of his kingdom on food and feasting. And as the larders of the great palace grew bare of provender, it was Mestra whom he sent out at the head of a troop of men and women and children with large woven baskets in their arms to beg for holy arms in the street and on the roads for bread, cheese and biscuits which they brought back and which the king consumed and for money which he threw into his empty coppers cloths and rags which he raged over medicines which he tried to drink but then spat out he would strike her and curse her for bringing him those things. Mestra prayed to Demeter, to Hecate, and to Artemis. She prayed to Zeus and Apollo, though the only thing that she had to offer them were tears, blood, bone, and torn skin. Save her father, she cried, a dutiful daughter, do what she couldn't, soothe the sin, mother the monster. But even the sacred dews of food, portions of meat, of honey and wine, had been diverted from the altar stones to her father's table. There was barely any food to keep for herself. And of that, it made her sick. In the morning, she threw it all up. She knew what that signified, and it terrified her. Eventually, the Tyrrhenians came to the palace, carrying with them their bundles of rope and chain. Young men, women, children, his subjects, were led into Aphon's hall. He conversed with the master, who dropped a satchel of gold into the king's twitching hands. Aphon rifled and sighed, then flung handfuls of the gold at the floor and raged. It wasn't enough, not nearly enough. And he grasped at the master's throat as if he could kill him. But the swarthy man merely clamped the squat king's wrists in his huge fists and stared down at the king. I agree he said. It's not enough. And then he turned his head, and Aphon's gaze followed his. The master was gazing at her, gazing at Mestra. The king saw. His eyes widened, and he... He held her gaze. His eyes were dead. His lips didn't move. For long seconds, he said nothing. Mestra backed out the door. She ran, and the cries of the pirates rose at once. Seeing the king's impotence, they were loosed from any rightful fear. They chased the king's daughter. And bound by faltering bound, she crossed rooms and portals, stumbled down pavements until once again there was only one road that she could take, the path which lay between the open sky and the black and terrible sea. She ran, 
She cried and she screamed. Her voice was drowned out, drowned by the sea. But she drew herself up before the breaking cataracts and she threw her oaths against them. Earth shaker, rock breaker, horse father, save me. I demand that you save me. Me who bears your child. And in a flash, Mestra's flesh became as loose as water. Her form unfastened, collapsed into foam, then rose again in a swirl of silver currents that leapt up from the grey sands of the shore, and stretching out with her body, her arms and her chest, Mestra rose, not a woman, but a bird, a sea turn which burst into the air from the cresting wave and to the strangled cries of their surprise flew up over the heads of the pursuing pirates just as the tide stretched out and crashed down over their heads. She was free. Free for long moments turning circles in the whipping winds, feeling them move through her hollow bones and her crisp feathers dizzying her, exhilarating her. Then she felt it, a twinge deep inside of her. From wherever within she still carried her womb, the joy dissolved into nausea. Borne back down by the weight, she flew to the palace, seeking a perch, trying to hold her body and the pain. She didn't understand exactly who she was now, or what it was that lay in the depths of her, though she knew the stories of men and women who by the power of the gods were changed, but was she supposed to be still in her own mind? And what's more, she felt, no, she knew, that this changing, it was not a binding, but a muscle. She remembered the shape of her woman's body, and felt surely that she could make her way back to it. She streaked past the portals of the palace, and beneath the roof of her father's hall. And she spied her father. Aphon was once again hunched across his table, clutching with white knuckles his empty plate. And with piteous cries, Mestra winged her way down to perch upon the rest of her father's seat. She gazed at him with luminous, bright eyes, the king gazed back at her, his mouth wide, his great jaw clenching and unclenching. And hope fluttered in her breast as she saw his eyes, so round, so mournful, so red-rimmed and wet. Was this sorrow? Was this remorse? Was he mourning? But then Aphon seized her by her fragile neck. He slammed her down onto his clean scraped trencher and she saw that he was gleeful 
grinning, his teeth bared, white and glistening, and his lips, he moistened them, they were quivering, fingers tightened, squeezing her throat, and there was a sound, the first bones in her tiny neck cracking, but she choked out a cry, half a word, half a squawk. The king faltered, the corners of his mouth dropped, the gleeful light in his eyes dimmed and was replaced with confusion, and then with incredulity. He released her neck and sat back as tears flowed freely from Mestra's eyes, wet her beak and her feathers. And as she cried, the waters of her body shifted again, whelmed upwards, folded about whatever the heart of her was, if there was a heart any longer. And then Aphon's daughter was sitting there, returned to her father once again, sitting in his lap like the child that she had once been, sobbing into his chest and wonderingly with a gasp that could she suppose have been sorrow Aphon's arms encircled her again Mestra was betrothed to Glaucus, prince of Corinth, and his father, King Sisyphus, sent rich caravans of bridal prizes to King Aphon to secure the marriage. At the bridal feast, the guests averted their eyes from the father of the bride, who never, never once looked up from his feasting at the banquet. Glaucus took her to his ship, and they sailed away from Thessaly for his city for fair Corinth. He was like a tinny echo of her father, how he had been before the hunger consumed him. But the hunger was there in Glaucus as well. He was particularly proud of his horses, which he kept stabled in the ship's hold below the deck. They snarled and snapped at her viciously, which made the king delighted. The secret, he smiled, they eat flesh, and I keep them hungry. That night, in her dreams, Mestra saw the horses. She pressed herself against their flanks, squeezed in between their haunches, and then put down her own hooves, furrowed her snout, cleared it, snorted. Then she waited. Glaucus, 
thought that his bride must have fallen overboard in the night. He did not notice an extra stallion in his team of horses. And when they came to shore at Corinth, she broke free of the reins at once, ran to the ocean, galloped through the surge and the surf until she sprouted gills and fronds and she became one of the Earthshaker Poseidon's famed seahorses. The ocean's streams bore her home, bore the child, because she was just so much more water, just a vessel. Mestra was married again to a second suitor who filled her father's coffers. But when that prince broached the door to the bridal chamber, he was amazed to find no woman but only an antlered deer, which leapt through the open window and bounded from his palace. For a third suitor, she became a lioness, destroying the bridal litter that he bore her in. And with the fourth, she became a bull, flinging aside the soldiers who tried to bar her way as she charged first from the women's rooms and then crashed through the gates and the posts of the palace quarter. Each time, by her power, Mestra's willing flesh melted and refilled itself, gave her wings or claws or horns, whatever was needed to make a path for herself past guards and slavers and jailers. But after she was free, what then? After the spasm of power and freedom faded, what was left? Who was she? A used lover, an unmarried pregnant daughter, a prostitute, a changeling, an ominous prodigy, hateful to good men, too unclean to broach the ground of any holy sanctuary. And so she returned to the only cradle where she knew that she might lay her child when it was born, to the kingdom, the palace, and the bosom of her father. The way that the story is told when Limos breathed her hunger into King Aphon, she departed again for her home of waste and want. But your grandmother always told me that she believes hunger never left. Instead, she made Thessaly her kingdom. As Aphon consumed everything, his subjects grew thin and beggarly. The land slipped into destitution. Sometimes at night, your grandmother would wander the once shining, now filthy, threadbare halls of her father's palace, and she swore that she caught sight of Lemos, crouching in the sconce and shadow, with her haggard breath mingling her pestilence into the thin night air. The hunger touched everyone. There was no thing, not creature, not flower, 
Not oath nor love that ever grew to ripeness or fullness there, while Aphon remained their king. Nothing that was, except for her. To marry her a third time would have been impossible. To try would have been desperate or mad. For it was widely noted that Aphon had been promising to kings and princes a surprising number of daughters, of whom no scribe or poet could sing any account. And to any observer, Mestra's pregnancy now was undeniable. But Aphon was desperate, and he was also mad. And so he summoned an importuned me, Autolycus, the robber king of Parnassus, to take his daughter in marriage. He found some waifly servant girl, swathed her and veiled her and paraded her in front of me, while Mestra, also veiled and large with child, watched from the sidelines of her father's court. The stink of poverty clung to everything. And I met your grandmother's eye over her veil, and I knew that she could see it just as I smelt it. Aphon's charade was failing. Outside her father's hall, I engaged her. What a tragedy it is, I said, that King Aphon's daughter is so beautiful but all wise men say that Aphon himself is grown desperate and beggarly, with his kingdom destined to fall any day now into ruin. And Mestra replied with haughty words, I should have thought that a king's virgin daughter should be prize enough herself for any king, least of all a king like yourself. I only laughed. <laughs> yes, I said. It's miraculous, isn't it, how a king's poverty can so quickly stitch up a daughter's hymen. Tell me, mistress, and I pointed to her swollen womb, are you one of his daughter's ladies? Does she bless you, this baby, and his father? And my intent was to leave things there. I had brought no bridal gifts with me to Thessaly, only empty chests, which if the king was so weak as was rumoured, I thought I might fill on my way out of his kingdom. But there was nothing there worth plundering. And here is the irony, Odysseus. I came to Aphon's kingdom with the designs of a thief. But it was your grandmother who stole my heart. Which of the gods attended the night of that fateful birth? Aeolus, perhaps, blowing down the walls and shutters of the palace, crashing against the gates as if enraged in a passion to prevent it. The midwives crowded close around your grandmother's bed. King Aphon, 
watched from within the chamber, pacing back and forth in squirming agitation, gnawing sometimes on a thick root, sometimes biting through his nails. If he drew blood, then he would lick at it, thirstily. And at the apex of her labours, Mestra's screams penetrated far beyond the walls of her chambers. Terrible enough, I swear, to stir the shades down in Erebus or make Zeus believe it was a new gigantomachy. I crashed through the doors of that chamber. And as always, I was wroth. I threw the creature Aphon aside, broke through the wall of women. And then I saw her. Mestra was changing, like the gods and the nymphs of the sea do whenever they struggle to escape any bind or torment. She was first a roaring lioness, and then in the blink of an eye, a writhing, snapping serpent. And then she was a panther that mewled and snarled and clawed. The women tried to hold her down, but her body, in each new form, would twist out of their grasp. I saw this, and I cried out a great oath. This birth, it was destroying her. And I shoved through the waiting women. I threw myself over her. I locked my great arms around Mestra's middle. I held on, and I bore with her. To any observer, it would have looked like wrestling, but it was quite different. And as I held her through her pain, through every peak of her animal emanations, I felt the rhythm of her body change, the energy still agonized, still rippling, but focusing, solidifying, bearing in, instead of fleeing. She was clinging to me, anchoring herself to my solid form while hers divided and dissolved itself endlessly. Now she was a bristling boar, a deadly tiger. Then she became a thicket of thorns and knotting vines which twined thickly around my arms and shoulders, which sharply stung and pierced my calloused skin. Before, suddenly, she burst into a flaming kindle, burning white hot which burned and singed and hazed the air. Then last of all, she melted into streams of water, which roiled and swirled and roared, until the gushing torrent burst apart and expelled what was within. Beneath me, the body dissolved, into a whirlpool of steam and air, until at last I only felt the kiss of drenched and puckered flesh beneath my own. In my arms, Mestra gasped and sobbed, but around her, all at once, the women keened. I vaulted off, and I saw, I saw the child was dead. It was grey, like a stone, and completely limp, no spark of life at all in it. I didn't let her look, 
as I gathered Mestra in my arms and turned her head away. I whispered to her as comfortingly as I knew how. And as I did that, I saw Aphon. He had approached the bed and he was standing over the baby. Something was working in him behind those wet, feverish eyes. His whole body was tense. First it was his hands and his mouth, they were both twitching. And then I saw that his whole body, it was shaking. And from the hollow pit of King Aphon's stomach there came a sound not a rumble, but a growl. A furious moan from the pit of his bowels, which twisted his face into pain desperation. And then with a sudden surge of energy, he scooped up the babe's body, laid it in one of the cold stove pans that lay there by the bedside, and then lifting it and clutching it to his chest, the king swept silently and determinedly from the chamber. Mestra left with me a few days later. After that night, she never again saw her father. I brought her back to Parnassus to our mountain forts and cave dwellings, and saw her nursed until she regained her strength. Mestra was a woman of great wit, strength and fortitude, my match in anger and in her powers, which served her well as the consort of a robber king. They say that when King Aphon had consumed every scrap of food in his kingdom and his own starving people could bring him no more, that then the king began to gnaw upon his own hands and with anguished screams both of pain and of rattling hunger, one bite after bloody bites, he consumed all of his own flesh until his rabid spirit descended to Hades, where now he sits imprisoned in that same pool with the titan Tantalus, where the waters will always shrink back from your thirsty lips, and the drooping ripe fig branches will curl away from your grasping fingertips. But you may well ask, if King Aphon was so depraved, why did he not try to eat some other poor soul before he was driven to dine on his own flesh? A page, a maid, a serving boy perhaps. And in truth, I cannot say that he was never driven to sate his hunger on human flesh before that night. But I knew what I had seen. And so before I left, I scaled the palace wall and climbed within the king's own chambers. I struck him over the head with my sap. And then I unlocked his door and with my men dragged him outside. And beneath the moon's pale eye, we threw him into a tomb-like pit 
of which there was no hope that he could scale the sides. When we left, he was already chewing up worms and spiders, sucking water from stones, gnawing through tree roots. But in the end, there would have been nothing else left to sink his teeth into. Nothing except his own flesh. So remember well, young Odysseus, the history of your grandmother, Queen Mestra, who by my side became the robber queen of Panassus. And remember her father, King Erisichthon, whom we also call Aphon, the ravenous, the cannibal king of Thessaly. The story was done, and Autolycus broke his trance. Once again, he shone a smile on Odysseus. The boy's wound was bound now. It would heal, but leave a prominent scar. You are always welcome here, in the mountains with me, my boy, said his grandfather. I will never understand why your mother married an islander. In the mountains, you breathe the same air that the gods breathe. But the ocean, the ocean deep is darker than the cloak of night. It hides dreams and ghosts and monsters in its multitudes. Death comes out of the sea, Odysseus. Avoid the sea always, if you can help it. You've been listening to the Lore and Legend Halloween Special, Episode 2, The Cannibal King's Daughter. Join us tomorrow for Episode 3. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Caleb Hennessy and Sakilo. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org and full audio credits are available on our website. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, you can find us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. And if you like what you hear and you want us to keep on making more of these stories, please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon. You can find the link to that by going to our main website and clicking on Support Us. Once again, Thank you for listening, Story Folk, and have a very happy Halloween.